dive right into our scripture reading for today. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 27. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Children, you're dismissed. So who doesn't like to win? Who in here does not like to win? As Americans in a Western influenced by Greek culture, what we see in 1 Corinthians, and as Americans in a militaristic and capitalistic culture, we really, really like to win. We win wars. We want to win in business. We want to beat out the next company in profits and sales. We do YouTube videos and have news channels that are geared around destroying, in all caps, people and arguments of the other side. We love sports. The NBA Finals just finished. Super Bowls, high school sports, rec leagues. We go to our kids' games that dominate a lot of our time. We like games. We like sports. We like to win. And Christianity is all about winning too. It's about victory over the powers of darkness. It's about the defeat of our greatest enemy, Death. It's about Jesus, the champion, the conqueror, the captain, the one who destroys evil and the one who crushes the devil. And it's about power. It's about the power of the gospel. The gospel message is described as power, which is the salvation of sinners. And so the Christian message will win. Because its content is not just words, but it's the Word. The Word with a capital W. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. The King of kings who wins. All nations, all peoples will bow the knee. So Christianity is about winning. 
And Paul knows this. He uses this language throughout the passage that we just read. He knows about winning. You see, gaining competition all over our passage today. But, here's the deal with Christianity. Here's the deal with Christianity and with what Paul knows about and embodies in his own life that it does not always look like winning. In fact, it often looks like losing. Looks like we're losing. Christianity wins by losing. Christians live by dying. Jesus sacrifices His freedom for the love of His enemies, not just His friends. And so I think what the Holy Spirit today, not because I have some line to heaven, but because we have the Word of God in front of us, the Holy Spirit, I think today, through the words of Paul and through this life in the city of Corinth, wants to show us how to win. God wants to show us how to win, how Christians win, how we win people to the good news of Jesus and how we win the race of faith. And God wants to show us that we win by laying aside our rights in love to those we want to reach. We deny ourselves to save others. And the Holy Spirit wants us to see that we win the race. We win this Christian life by self-control like a disciplined athlete. So, how Christians win. I think that would be the subject of today's message. So let's look. Let's look at it. The first phrase in verse 19. For though I am free from all. So Paul, again, taking up this whole issue of freedom. And he says that he is free from all. He is not going to be enslaved to others' expectations or demands. And so here is where we need to remember the context of what we've been reading. We need to remember last week. And there was this whole idea of how he was laying aside his rights, his rights in common sense in the social setting, in the culture, his rights from the Bible, from Jesus Himself to receive financial donations, that He lays that aside. And He says, though I am free from all. He is no one's client. So in Greek culture, and in that time, there was patronage. And He was not going to be in service to somebody else so that He could be manipulated or so that he couldn't kind of ebb and flow and move according to the various peoples that he wanted to see saved and trust the good news. Just kind of give us some of the background that I think helps set the stage here. Here's what one person said. Paul is aware that if he accepts financial provision from Christians in Corinth, this will come mainly, if not entirely, from the wealthier members of the church who constitute or are linked with the strong in this passage. They will become, in effect, his patrons and he their clients. In the Greco-Roman culture of the day, favors are regarded as implying some reciprocal obligation. Hence, if Paul accepts their financial provision, they will expect favored terms from Paul and their claims about their position in the church, their relation with the weak, their role in the ordering of the church. 
perhaps in terms of hierarchy of status within the church. Such hostages to pastoral pressures would be unthinkable. Paul insists on being even-handed or when necessary on giving particular attention and respect to the most vulnerable and fragile. So one of the reasons of why Paul is doing this and the why he's laying aside these rights is because he's not going to be anybody's client. He is not going to be manipulated by anyone, and particularly the strong or maybe some of the elite, some of the wealthier there. Not that that would ever happen in church, right? You would never have pastors enslaved to wealthier people. And so, Paul says, he says no to that, even though he could, he's free to do it, but he's so free that he can say, no, though I am free from all. And then he kind of flips it. And I always say, I thought you weren't a patron, I thought you were or I thought you weren't a client of anyone. And then he says, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So now it's switched. It's servant of all. And so that word, doulos, or I think this is a form of it, means slave. So it's even more intense. It's not just servant. It's slave. That he almost enslaves himself to these other people that he wants to win because he wants to win more of them. And so he won't serve one in particular to sway his message, but he will serve all and any different type of person to win them to Jesus. And the reason why he does this is not just because he sees himself as a slave to everybody, but ultimately, remember he describes himself a lot when he starts his writings or his letters as a slave of Christ. Because his whole mission, his whole decisions, all of his ministry is totally enslaved to Jesus with that radical, almost offensive usage of language. That's how he sees himself to Christ. And so he's a slave to all because he himself is a slave to Jesus. Gordon Fee said, Freedom is not the goal. The salvation of others is. That's Paul's heart. The highest goal for him, the most supreme thing, is not freedom, but it's seeing salvation of others. It's not his personal freedom and autonomy. It is love for other people that they too might be saved. That's his whole heart. And then he starts to break it down. And he brings four different categories of people. In verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So, When Paul is going to minister to Jewish people, he takes on a lot of their particular customs and he even suffers. So, for instance, in Acts 16, Acts 16, and why don't we just look at that real quick just so you can hear it. Not just trust me, but actually hear what it says. Acts 16.3. You see some of how he does this and he does this periodically throughout Acts. To start at the very beginning. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So he takes it so far that in his ministry he says, Hey, Timothy, 
Guess what? Time to be circumcised. Yay! So, that's how far he takes it. Now, we've seen him in other places make it very clear that if somebody is saying, hey, the good news of Jesus means you've got to be circumcised, he rebukes it flatly. He does not put up with it. He takes a stand on the freedom of the gospel. But, in this case, he says, you know what? Sometimes when I want to win Jewish people, I'm going to go and abide by some of these things. I'm going to take it that far. In Acts 18, there's, a, there's another spot where there's what a, a vow that he made, which could be a Nazarite vow, what some people think. Eighteen, eighteen. After this, Paul strayed many, excuse me, stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Sincrea. He had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Some people think that might have been a Nazarite vow. So him, again, he, in certain situations, in certain settings, he's going to do one thing and in a different setting, he might do a different thing. Kind of always like, well, aren't you wishy-washy? That's kind of compromising things. No. He is going to go as far as he can without compromising the good news of Jesus to win whoever he is meeting. That's how far he is going to go. And this was interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd never heard this before. I was, I was reading and one commentator made reference to 2 Corinthians 11.24. So again, later letter to the same church. And there's that little phrase when he's listing about how about um, these people that are boasting, these false apostles, and he's trying to argue for his apostleship. And he says things like, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. In other words, are they Jewish? Are they servants of Christ? And, and he talks about how he's, talking about how he's a madman in describing himself this way and how he's been imprisoned and beaten. And then one of the first examples he gives is, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. And he go. Huh, well, well, why is what, what does that have to do with this kind of an attitude of being like a like a Jewish person? This I didn't know this. This was interesting. Here's what one scholar says: We can only guess that the synagogue inflicted this punishment for Paul's proclaiming his faith in the crucified and risen Christ. So why does Paul usually get beat up? Because people don't like to hear the gospel. He goes on which they presumably considered blasphemous and his altered understanding of the hope of Israel that now included uncircumcised Gentiles and the people of God. Paul's motives for submitting to this discipline are a little more difficult to penetrate. But rulings from the Mishnah... What's the Mishnah? It's Jewish oral traditions. Rabbinic literature. The Mishnah lists 36 sins, including blasphemy, that warrant being cut off from the people without warning. What's important to note, however, is that flogging averted both a harsher punishment at the hands of God and being cut off from the people. You see that in Leviticus. The Mishnah rules, quote, And thy brother seem vile unto thee. When he is scourged, then he is thy brother. The axiom clarifies what it means for Paul to become like one under the law, though he himself is not under the law. He bowed to synagogue discipline to maintain his Jewish connections. If one wanted to stay a member of the Jewish community, one had to submit to its discipline. Paul accepted these penalties to keep open the option of preaching the gospel message in the synagogue. Thy brother seemed violent to thee. Seemed like, man, you need to get out. You need to be cut off. You're gross, in a sense. When he is scourged, then he is thy brother. That actually the scourgings, the beatings that he received was him showing how much 
He wanted to stay in, so to speak, that Jewish setting. He's going to continue to receive beatings to preach the good news and to say, hey, I'm an Israelite. I'm a Hebrew. I'm with you. Wild. What a, what a focused person on his mission and his passion that people would know Jesus. So he became as a Jew in order to win Jews, both in circumcision or in different things like that for his own ministry with Timothy and in even submitting to lashings and suffering in his own body. Goes on back to the Bible. Verse 20. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He loves to squeeze in those little parenthetical statements here. So this is very similar to what goes before. Now he's just kind of clearly saying under the law, obviously Jewish people under the law, the focus of the law, the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible. And so he's saying, hey, under the law, I'm going to become, I'm going to do everything that I can within reason um, to save those under the law. Yeah, but you know what? I'm actually not under the law. We've seen that. You see that in Galatians. You see that in Romans. All the things say it's not about being under the law. He lives by a new law, the law of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so he will go that far to win, there's that word again, those under the law. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. So, he goes other side. Now, now, the Jewish people aren't really going to like that. So, this is when you can kinda, he can kind of be accused of what some people say like a, a chameleon. He'll kind of become... And, and in one sense, he is, but it will never compromise the gospel and it will never be sinful. But he is flexible. So, to those outside the law, Greeks, you Greeks, some that I'm talking to here in Corinth and all these pagan temples and everything we're talking about, I'm going to be as much as I can like you outside of the law. But then he squeezes in another parenthetical statement. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So he's not saying, hey, I'm going to break what God says in God's law. No. No, I'm not going to do that. But I'm just not going to live in the same ways in accordance with it to win those who don't. To win the Greeks. Now, the Jewish people may not like that very much and we see that all through the New Testament in issues that I just mentioned. And all through when it comes down to compromising the Gospel or trying to raise certain certain requirements and ways of life on the same level. But he is going to became, become as one outside the law to win them. But he will not be lawless. It's not that he's lawless. He's not going to break God's law, but that's not the main issue for him is winning. The Greeks winning the Gentiles, winning those uncircumcised Philistines, so to speak. Next verse, to the weak, this is verse 22, I became weak that I might win the weak. Now, we talked about this last week, or excuse me, a few weeks ago. This isn't so much the issue of weak and strong, likely. Kind of that, hey, over the debatable issue, some are weak, some are strong. But it's likely here because of the context that he's not speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who aren't Christians to win them, to save them to see them come to know Jesus. But it could be that it's weakness as in 
lower class. Remember? The whole area here. you got the wealthy ones, the elite ones, the ones with all the knowledge, the ones with all the nice worldly Greek wisdom. And he's saying, hey, I'm even going to go to those other classes of people, to the weak ones, and I want to see them one. I'm going to become like them. That's just what I got done talking about. I'm the tent maker, working the manual labor that some of you look down on. And I am going to be just like them. I'm going to lay aside my rights, my privileges, to receive better, better financial support and do other things, and I'm going to become like them to win them. I want to see them one to Jesus. Again, his, his heart so clear. One scholar points out that weak, when Paul uses that word too, like in Romans, you know, weak and ungodly, the sense of powerless. Here's what one said. Weak may also allude to the theological condition of all humankind as ungodly, a condition that Paul discovered also included overachieving righteous Jews. Quote, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. So, could be more of just kind of a social setting, social class, what he just got done arguing of why he's laying aside his rights. Could also just be general, fallen, ungodly, weak, powerless humanity. He's going to become like them to see them saved. And he's going to boast in weakness to show that that's how the power of God can come because Jesus Himself did that and came in weakness. And what society views as the weaker, the outcast. So, Paul's attitude so clear at the end of verse 22, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. A lot of alls. All things. All people. All means. He is devoted to it. It is sweeping and He will do everything to win people. He will go as far as He goes without compromising the law of God. Without being lawless. Without disobeying the Lord. But man, cultural issues, He'll morph into whatever. And so his heart is to see people saved. He becomes who he wants to win. You see that everywhere. I became as one. I became as one. That's verse 20. That's verse 21. Verse 22. I became weak. He becomes like them. Well, what's that? That sounds familiar. What is the incarnation? What does Jesus do? Jesus takes on human flesh, becomes entirely and completely like humanity to save them and to rescue them. He lays aside the divine prerogatives that He has. He's divine. He's God. But He becomes entirely human. And even in human limitations and sufferings. And He embraces that. So again, it's all pointing back to Jesus and pointing to Christ. His heart is for salvation of any and every kind of sinner. Again, he becomes who he wants to win. One person tying this all to just Jesus and Paul's whole heart here. He says, Christ became what we are. He was made what we are. He was sent into our condition in order that we might become what He is. 
Paul, in turn, became what the men and women to whom he was proclaiming the Gospel were in order that he might gain them for the Gospel. And just as some of the statements about what Christ became needed modification, he became sin, though he knew no sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, where the word likeness prevents us thinking of him as a sinful. So too in the case of Paul. He came under the law, even though he was not under the law. He became as one without the law, even though he was not without God's law. So, Paul starts, what's he, who's he mimicking? What's his attitude mimicking? What's, what is he embodying? Jesus. Just what a beautiful picture of a, of a person utterly committed to the mission and the greatest mission that there is to be committed to, the salvation of sinners, the salvation of the world. I've become all things to all people that by all means I, may, I might save some. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the Gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. This is all, again, about the Gospel. It's about the good news. That's how He makes His decisions. That's how He runs His life. Everything is about that. It's not just about law-keeping or moralism or religious or irreligious. It's just all about the good news of Jesus all the way. That's what everything is about. He wants others to share with them in the, in the blessings of the Gospel and to spread that. A few things to notice here. Notice that he doesn't list sinful identities. He's made that clear by all of his parenthetical statements. Our culture focused on identity politics and identity issues and even you think about Pride Month. Paul doesn't say he doesn't become an adulterer to win adulterers. He doesn't become sexually immoral to win sexually immoral. He doesn't become porneia, to use the Greek term, to win those captured by it. So, he's not compromising what God has said. He, won't, he will embrace all different forms of identities and cultural settings and cultural contexts, but if it comes against what God's law has said... He will not enter that. Oh, he will be with those kinds of people all day, just like Jesus. He will be accused of maybe going a little too far, but he is not going to enter into the sin of false, sinful identities. And of course, we know this because we've seen it everywhere. This whole thing is smack dab in the middle of sexual immorality before and issues of sex and now issues of idolatry. So he's not saying we can't compromise those issues. We cannot compromise those issues. But man, he's going to go far. But he's not going to embrace any kind of sexual sinful freedom or idolatrous freedom. Another point is that notice, so sometimes when I've heard these passages preached, it's very much focused on like accommodation to the culture. Like, you know, you just try to become all like them. And there's, there's clearly leeway here. And some people are going to be kind of offended by what Paul does. So there's a little bit he's embracing certain things like when he goes to Athens and he's, or, 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 or when he goes to Mars Hill and he's kind of talking to all Greek culture. He's going to learn all kinds of things. Again, he's not going to compromise the issue, but he's going to learn all kinds of things. But this whole passage, the whole point here is about him giving up freedoms. So it's not about just kind of being cool with the various people. The whole attitude here isn't kind of adopting a bunch of new, really cool things that are just acceptable everywhere. But it's more about, these are the freedoms I'm giving up to go win these people. 
And I thought that that was interesting. Or think about cross-cultural missions. What do they do? Like if you're going to be a cross-cultural missionary and go to a different country, go to whatever country you want, a more restricted country, what are you going to do? You're going to have to lay aside freedoms because your highest value is saying, no, my highest value isn't just my freedom as an American, which again is great, which again we should rejoice in and at times even fight for. But it's even higher. Missionaries say, hey, I'm laying aside my freedom to go to this other country to win people. And so that's the kind of attitude that Paul has. It's all for the sake of the gospel that he may share with them and its blessings and he will go everywhere for it. So the next verses kind of switch gears. So that's the how Christians win. How do Christians win other Christians? Or I should say, how do they win converts? How do they evangelize? Everything we just said, that's what it should look like in our lives. So who might you be seeking to win? Who might you be becoming? What might you need to do to become for that other person that you love? To see them share in the blessings and privileges of the gospel. What might you need to lay aside? Metaphor switch, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So, in this culture, athletics was a big deal. Kind of like ours. We've seen that a lot throughout Corinth and our situation. You had the Isminian, or Is, I always forget how to say that, I-S-T-Y-M-I-A-N, Isthmian Games, I think is how you pronounce it, going on. It was like second to the Olympics. And that was, could have even been going on at this very time that Paul is in the city. And so everyone knew what that is. This metaphor that he's using, again, is becoming to the Corinthians like Corinth. He's speaking their language. He's speaking what they see and what they practice and what they participate in and where they're going, maybe even at that very time. Their thoughts on the games that are coming. Here's what one person said. The Christians in Corinth would know full well all about competitive races in the stadium and such other competitions as boxing, wrestling, weaponry, and even music and poetry. The Isthmian Games were held every two years on the very doorstep of Corinth within a short walking distance and they provided a major tourist attraction and a huge source of external revenue and employment for all types of trade and business for the city. The games were held in AD 49, shortly before Paul's arrival in Corinth. Again, in AD 51, while he was ministering there. And again, in AD 53 and 55, around the period of the arrival of this letter. We discuss the huge impact of the games upon daily life in a different part. And he goes on, Competitors did everything to win a crown, even a crown that fades and disintegrates. The winner received a garland, traditionally made from pine leaves, although some Greek writers allude to other kinds of leaves. The metaphor of competitive races appears in several Greek and Roman writers also to emphasize the need for self-discipline and self-control. And so he just goes on um, describing that. The point is, the games were probably right there, right then, at that time. The whole city excited about it. Also with this games, you had probably some forms of emperor worship and that these games were around, if you look up Encyclopedia Britannica, it's around Poseidon, the god of the sea. And so there might have even been worship happening. And some probably doing it for Poseidon, for 
a deity. And so, that's the setting. The stuff just doesn't come out of nowhere. I'm going to make this cool metaphor about racing. No, he's going to speak the language of all that's happening to them to encourage them. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And there's a distinction here. In the Olympics, what are there? You've got three. You get medals. Here, nope, one. One wreath. Second place, doesn't matter. It's all about winning. You win number one. Only one receives the prize. Silver and bronze is not what we're after. That's what he's saying here as Christians. We are after gold. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run? So run that you may obtain it. So this is exhortion. This is kind of fatherly exhortion, exhort, coaching, exhort. Hey, run, Christians, so that you may obtain the prize. So act like, live like you are in a race. You're not coasting. You're not passive. You're not passive. You are active. You are intentional. So are you running? Not just are you running, but are you running like you want to win? That's what he's driving for. That's what he's calling the Corinthians to. Run so that you may obtain the prize. Finish the race. Win it. And so how? Will they train like an athlete? What does an athlete do? Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control. So here's the word, and I'm going to butcher it like I always do, but here's the Greek word used for athlete there. Agonizomai. We get the word agony from. Okay, It's not always enjoyable when you're training for something. right? It's easier to eat chips and watch TV. We all know that. It's easier to do that. But what do athletes have to do? They have to deny themselves. They have to give up current now gratification for the future gratification of winning, of finishing. So every athlete, every athlete, every those engaged in agony exercises self-control in all things. Self-control, that lovely word. Fruit of the Spirit. And what a description. Calling us to be people of self-control in all things. And that's what athletes do. And if you watch YouTube or different things nowadays, like there's a huge impulse in our culture now for health and fitness and all that. And actually, there's a lot of really good things in that. We should do that. We should care about the body. But we know that it's hard. Exercise, diet, all those things are not easy. They require self Control. And that's the image he gives for Christians. It should look like that. That's what the Christian life should look like. It should look like athletes, a bunch of athletes exercising self control. People that say no to immediate gratification for long term goal of the prize. Focused on the end of the race, not just entering the race, but the end of it to finish it. And to win it, to win the eternal prize. 
They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. The wreath that they have on the heads or that you've seen in the old logos and pictures of the wreath that they might have gotten back in Greek culture. It dies. It fades away. And even for that, it wasn't... I mean, that's the symbol of, of, of the glory of winning, right? But he's saying, hey, we have an imperishable wreath, something that will never fade away. That's the kind of race that we are in. That's the prize that we are looking for, an eternal one to have conquered. Revelation, the word conquer is everywhere. Victory is everywhere. Again, it's bought through suffering, things like losing, things like laying aside the rights, but that's how Christian conquering works. But we're going to have an imperishable race an imperishable wreath, a, pr- a prize that will last forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And he's saying, hey, don't focus on the now. Focus on the future. Focus on the then. Do all that you can, even in agony, to exercise self-control to finish this race. To not be tempted by idolatry. To not be tempted by sexual... Excuse me. To not engage in idolatry. Everybody's going to be tempted. To not engage in sexual immorality. Those are covered in this chapter. But to exercise self-control by the power and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. To be encouraged to continue to keep going. To keep running. If you fall, get up. Keep running. Keep going. Keep doing it. We have an imperishable prize. I do not run aimlessly, verse 26. I do not box as one beating the air. So first we have racing. We have racing. I, was, I read this one article. I think it was Usain Bolt. Is that how you say his name? Remember him? He was the big racer. He talks about how, like, I think he didn't wake up till like 10 or something, but he would still go to the gym. He talked about his motivation for doing so in one article. I think it was GQ magazine. Not exactly a bastion of conservative Christian thought. <laughs> um, but he talked about one of his motivations and then he mentioned this thing about girls. But he also wants to give the gym to... That was one of his motivations. So what's Paul saying? You need to have a higher motivation. All, everybody, athletes, bolts, wants to win the gold, also kind of likes girls. Christians, Paul, it's the gospel. That's, what we, that's our motivation. So again, is that your motivation? Is that what you're running for? The good news of the gospel, the good news of that pride, prize. So I do not run aimlessly, intentionality, focus. I do not box as one beating the air, switching the metaphor to boxing. Shadow boxing. You, know, you watch the old boxing films that they'll be in the corner and they're shadow boxing in the air and then they go really box. They're saying, hey, we're not just shadow boxing. We are in the middle, in the fight. And that's what we are doing. We don't box as one beating the air. We have purpose as Christians. He always keeps that higher motivation in mind, not coasting, not passive. I discipline my body and keep it under control. And this word for discipline, I believe is connected to Beating, like I think some translations talk about, you know, he he beats his body or he pummels his body, and there's this, and the, and then behind that word is a sense of black eye, so it's purposeful, it's aiming, it's a punch directly to the face to give a black eye. He is utterly focused on this. 
I give my body a black eye to keep it under control. Now remember, this isn't saying that the body is bad. You can read this in a really twisted way. We've already seen that everywhere in Corinth and I've mentioned that a bunch of times. But there is a sense in which Paul is saying, hey, but this body is not the end. And so, he, he keeps it under control. So, sinful desires, he exercises self-control. He goes after them, targets them, will not put up with them, give them a black eye. He even carries in his body the marks of Jesus, the sufferings, these beatings that we've described. His body has literally been beaten for the sake of the good news of the gospel. That's how far even the autonomy of his own body has been hit and hurt. And so he's not just saying, hey, just be a bunch of ascetics. We've already seen that Paul is not a fan of asceticism. But hey, he will take persecution for the sake of the good news of the gospel. He will lay aside his own rights, financial gain, for the sake of the gospel. He will follow what God has said when it comes to idolatry and sexual immorality. And he will exercise self-control. And I was thinking that all through Corinthians, we've seen kind of this picture of self-control. In chapters 1 to 3, you saw the issue of tribalism, of kind of becoming um, division in the church and in the culture. And you know what happens when, you kind of, when we kind of get in all our tribes and we see this all the time in our world? It feels good. It feels kind of good to be on the tribe. It feels good to tear the, the other party or the other group of people down. It's, it kind of puffs you up. You're, you're a part of the team and you're against the other people. He's saying, hey, watch out. Self loves that. King self loves that kind of attitude. And Paul is pushing against that. Hey, Corinthians, be more self-controlled. Your life is about Christ and Him, not about some human leader. He mentions it in human wisdom and pursuits of, of um, human understandings and Greek wisdom and to be the smartest person around. He's saying, hey, have some self-control. Think about the big things. Self-control over in chapters 5 to 7. Sexually immoral issues. And self-control in idolatry. Hey, lay aside your rights for the sake of people not to fall back into idolatry, not to fall back into the worship at pagan temples. Don't give in to that kind of pressure. It's going to be hard. Your whole... Like we mentioned that one sermon, like you might have birthday parties there and, and all the social stuff happens there and the business deals happens there in the temple at the pagan feast and he's saying, Christian, sorry, nope, you can't do that. It's idolatry. That would have been very hard to do. Saying self-control. So just a reminder of, yes, we become all things for all people, but we don't enter into pagan and sinful practices to do so. We exercise self-control. But man, we, can, we go far, but we don't sin. And when we do, we look to Jesus to forgive us, to help us to get back up in the race and to keep on running. Lest after preaching to others, back to verse 27, I myself should be disqualified. And this word is like phony, like I'm a phony Christian. Bogus, not genuine, counterfeit, 
fake. I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And he's concerned about these people. He's going to get back into that in chapter 10 about the issue of idolatry. Again, keep the context in mind. That's, that's coming here next week. Because, man, if you fall back into idolatry and, and worshiping pagan idols, you're not a Christian. If you engage in all of these practices, you might prove that you are not a Christian, that it's fake, that you are disqualified. So he's exhorting them, keep running. Don't fall into this. There's all kinds of pressure around you. Keep going. Run hard. Have self-control. Look to the person of Jesus Christ. And you can't help but think of, to close us out, good old Hebrews. And Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You can just feel this whole passage from Paul kind of all over this. Endure. Run. Keep going. It's for the joy. Ignore temporary gratification now for future joy later. What did Jesus do? Where should your eyes be? It's on Jesus because He laid aside His rights. He died on a tree. He was given up to sinful people to be crushed so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have the prize of eternal life, of life in a new heavens and a new earth, of eternal pleasure. And so, our eyes should be on the founder. Not Paul, but Jesus and what He did and what He has done. So are you getting tired of running? Don't get tired. Don't give up. Admit it. God, I'm tired of running. God, I'm tired of fighting. Say it out loud. Say it out loud to a friend. I'm tired. But then remind yourself, keep going. Jesus loves you. Jesus is with you. He went before. He did this. He did this to win the eternal prize. And you're a part of it, so keep going. Don't fall into the pressures of everything around you and keep running. And so, we remember Jesus ran all the way to the cross. And that's what we do. We're going to remember what He has done to help keep us running. Keep us going. So, let's do that as we sing. And let's remember Jesus.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.
Happy Father's Day. God bless you.